The following message was given by Mark Beckton on Sunday, November 5th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Take your Bibles, please. Open them to Hebrews chapter 6. I have the joy of having Robert return preaching next Sunday. We'll conclude our journey through Hebrews just today on chapter 6. But before we jump into the chapter, I want to ask you that when you have found Hebrews chapter 6, just open it up. There's something about touch that is very meaningful. But just put your hand on it. And would you let me pray? Father, we thank you that in your word, in Hebrews, you tell us your word is alive. And sharper than any two-edged sword, that you go right to the deep places of our very being. Thank you for that. Thank you, Father, that you breathed your word into existence so that we might know you intimately. I praise you, Father, that your word is purposed by you for our encouragement, our correction, our instruction, and even, Father, when we need to be exhorted. And, Father, today I ask, uh, fill me with your spirit so that you may uh, speak today as you would. That, Father, fill every follower with your spirit so that you would open our understanding to Scripture and guide us in all truth as you've promised in your word. Father, for all of us, we've, we've come to this moment today with a week, a month, or several months of just things building and building and building. And I praise you that you know the backstory for each of us to this very day. So I ask again that you will speak through Hebrews chapter 6. And let us have the privilege that your disciples did. Just sit at your feet. Let us just sit at your feet and teach us. Out of the love and care that you have. And your jealousy for God's holiness. And your care for us. I thank you for that Father. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. So, last time, if you were here last week, uh, we, we ended with Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, with a pretty hard word from God to these Jewish believers, basically saying, I feel like I'm having to talk to uh, spiritual infants. I feel like these are, you are lazy kindergartners because you've stuck at the ABCs of the gospel story. My dad was a pastor for over 40 years and he said, son, if you're going to preach the people into a hole, preach them out of it. And it sounds like a great preaching practice, but the first one who ever did this was God. Out of his loving kindness, he made some hard statements at the end of chapter 5. Hard for any of us to hear or receive. But then you hear his loving kindness in chapter 6. Preached into the hole in chapter 5 and preached out in chapter 6. For all of chapter 6 is about maturing spiritually. 
So as we look at this together, it feels as if uh, God has put the ladder in. We get to take the steps on the ladder out. The first run about spiritual maturities in verses 1 through 3. And it's simply this, that spiritual maturity should happen naturally. You find this in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. Lori and I married. We were, uh, I was 21, she was 19. We were both in college. And uh, in subsequent years, her degree was in family relations and child development. She brought a textbook home by Burton White called The First Three Years of Life. This is what Burton writes. The first eight months of a baby's life have a special quality that sets them apart from all subsequent periods. During these early months, a baby's general progress and development is assured by nature. If parents provide a baby with generous amounts of love, attention, and physical care, nature will pretty much take care of the learning process. I use that as a bridge because when you and I look at our own spiritual maturity, the Father has already assured us that it it should happen naturally because of what He has already given to us. In John chapter 14 and verses 15 through 18, it tells us that upon salvation, the very Spirit of Christ comes to live within us. And by having the Spirit of Christ live within us, then we should have His spiritual DNA. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, it explains that we inherit that DNA and should naturally experience and express the following. Christ's love, joy. Peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faith, uh, goodness, self-control. So we should be able to have that spiritual fruit. But also with Christ within us, He, by His Word, tells us He gives us some of His abilities. I have some of His abilities. You have some of His abilities. No single individual has all of His abilities. And He purposed that so that we gather together as a body. Together we have all of His abilities. They're called spiritual gifts. And they're talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12. But knowing that God provides generous amounts of love, attention, and care, our initial spiritual maturity should progress naturally. That anticipated progression is outlined in verses 1 through 3. We'll look at special words. Uh, The words at the outset is repentance and faith. You find Christ when He came and began to preach... He said, I'm preaching that you may repent and believe. Verses 1 through 3 really gives us the whole picture of the salvation story. And again, we talked about it last Sunday, trying to give us beyond the ABCs, but the ABCs themselves are very beautiful. So how do we get to repentance and faith? In... um, Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, Scripture tells us that the faith that we have in order to experience salvation is actually graced to us by Christ. The passage says, it is granted to us that we might believe. And the the word that's used there is translated throughout the New Testament as grace. 
So you and I understand that the, the salvation we have, the faith to, to believe these things has actually been grace to us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It was grace to us by God. So how do we know when we've been graced by God with the faith to believe? It's when we go through an experience of repentance. In Acts chapter 2, when the gospel bursts from the upper room into the crowded streets of Jerusalem and is shared in the multiple national, national languages, when the people hear the gospel, and again, not everybody does, 3,000 of what may have been 250,000 for Pentecost gathered, they cry out to Peter and the others, what must we do? And literally scripture says they were pierced. They were pricked, other translations. It's a word that goes deeply to say they were stabbed with this. There was an awareness made possible by the Spirit of God to the holiness of God, their sinfulness to God's grace and the beauty of adoption that he makes possible. This restless piercing is the beauty of the faith given to us to now act on that and believe and repent. And, and you and I get to experience that eye-opening power with the Father. But as you continue to, to mature, the, the natural course after this then is what we just saw in the video. Baptism. Baptism. You find this in the term where it talks about the traditional washings, the ceremonial washings. You'll find in the Old Testament there are many times where they will have to consecrate either foods or consecrate utensils. And they were to be washed so that they were set apart for a divine service. Even before they crossed the Jordan River, Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves before passing through the water. There was a sense of a visible act or a visible picture of being set apart unto God. When we have that powerful moment of baptism like we just shared, it is that visible thing among us as believers, a part of our salvation, that we display that testimony to others. And then it's not a one and done, believed, repented, baptized. Now you're a part of what Christ is doing. It's in our salvation. Because he calls us to make disciples of all nations. So we are to do this as we go. And the beautiful picture of the gospel and our salvation is following Christ. We make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And if you're making disciples who make disciples that make disciples. As a result, there will be churches who need to birth churches who need to birth churches. And the Father will call from the churches individuals who will serve as servants, deacons, or as elders. And therefore, like it says in verses 1 through 3, there is a laying on of hands to set them apart. So that continually, as believers and as churches, we are continuing to work with Christ until He comes, or we experience, as it says in verse 2, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. See, that's the full completion of our salvation experience. The repentance, the grace given to, to believe, the adoption, and then the following of Christ, uh, the, the churches, and then he returns. And it says in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we were foreknew and predestined to be conformed to Christ. That's the ultimate end of our salvation. The, the Greek word to be is not there. It just says you are predestined conformed. It's going to happen. And it happens either by us passing away to be with Christ or Christ's return. Our whole salvation is the working out of the beauty of Christ and knowing Him. That's the reason one of the churches I pastored, uh, the oldest woman's class in the church, she gave it the name the until class. 
until Christ's return or until we meet him, we'll keep meeting. We'll keep going through his word. I love that. Uh, back to White's book, Burton White. He claims that a child maturing process for the first 18 months happened naturally. He also offers this disclaimer. I do not mean to imply that it is impossible to do a bad job of child rearing during this period. It is always possible through stupidity or callousness to do lasting harm to a child of any age and especially during the first months of life. Nor do I mean that the normal pattern of development during this first eight months cannot be improved upon. Let's bridge that. White clarifies that though a child is born with innate abilities to be physically mature, what happens to that child during those eight months could hamper or enhance their growth. According to what we'll read in Hebrews chapter 6, the same can be said of our spiritual growth Spiritual laziness or dull of hearing as we talked about last week. Or callousness can cause spiritual setbacks. However, being attentive and obedient to God cannot enhance, uh, can enhance our growth. And that is why in verses 4 through 8, God teaches us to consider the consequences. Consequences He purposes in advance. So before we jump into that. Let me go back to verse 1, look at it again, where it says, Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity. One of the older authors that I read who did a deep work on Hebrews, his name was W.A. Haynes. And he, he looked at the Greek word that is translated, this simple phrase, let us go on, and found that it actually was a nautical term. It describes a sailing vessel struggling against a wind or storm. And finally, winds opposing the storm emerge, carrying the vessel into the securing port. In verses 4 through 8, when facing a storm, tempting us to turn from God, he reminds us to consider the consequences of turning from God compared to staying with him. So look at it, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. Because uh, to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. For ground that has drunk the rain, that has often fallen on it, that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. Reading this passage, uh, one of the gut reactions in, in head tilt is the wonder, does this mean you can actually lose your salvation? Uh, the assuring term that says no you cannot is the term used fallen away. 
You find that in verse 6. You who have fallen away. You'll find that same word translated differently. Same Greek term translated differently. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. There Paul conveys his drive to win the race God set before him. His greatest fear is being on the team but benched. Put to the side by God because of sin in his life. Paul wants to experience the race and the thrill of victory after victory with God. So these Hebrews, however, are at risk of being benched by God. Their attitude is wrong. God knows they will never be, verse 4, repentant and sent back into the game if they continue treating Jesus and His sacrifice with such contempt in verse 6. Thus, to get their head back in the game, God offers a simple mental exercise. In verses 7 and 8, He tells them to consider the consequences of their actions. Don't make this a quick decision. Stop for just a moment and think about it. Uh, Okay, I can't get ahead of myself. I want to, but I won't. Uh, Leaving Paul's metaphor of the race, we step into the farm now in verses 7 and 8. It says that a soil soaked with rain and cultivated by a farmer produces a bumper crop that thrills the farmer. He knows it's a blessing from God. But if the farmer is negligent, thorns and thistles take over. They are worthless. The only thing to be done with the thorns and the thistles is to burn them. God uses this picture to teach the Hebrew believers a valuable lesson. When tempted to retreat from your surrender to Christ, follow the consequences of their actions to their ultimate end. Verse 8 says, if you neglect your surrender to Christ, the efforts of your life will be worthless to God. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11-15, through 15, it reminds us that in the end, all the efforts of our life are presented to God. He tests them with fire. Efforts founded on surrender, submission, obedience to Christ last to become an everlasting reward. Efforts not founded on surrender, submission, obedience to Christ appear as thorns and thistles to God. And they are worthless to Him. And thus they are burned. Trying to avoid or escape something painful. We risk making quick decisions that seem helpful at first. But in the end, they are more harmful. Every experience uh, may have caused, uh, uh, experience may have caused Blase Pascal to say the following. One half of the ills of life come because men are unwilling to sit down quietly for 30 minutes to think through all the possible consequences. That's what God is trying to teach the Hebrew believers then and today. Take a potential thought or act to its logical end before proceeding. That is part of spiritual maturing. Stopping to think, pray, ask, before just acting. And it would be helpful if I could just give you an example. So let me just give you the following example. There's two different possibilities. Let's take both of them to their logical end. Let's talk about questioning the Bible. Where does that go to its logical end? If you begin doubting the sum of the Bible, then you, you really have to question all of it. Because it, have, I, have I understood what is really there? Or is maybe if this is not, is, is this not? 
If you question all, you become accountable to none. If you are accountable to none, God and life are what you make it. If God and life are what you make it, in the end, the best that you can hope for is dust. There, there are many who just simply say there's no life after death. Uh, I just believe we become dust. Yet you sense deep within you, you were meant for more than that. So let's take the opposite. Let's talk about believing the Bible. If you question none of it, that means you're accountable to all of it. If you're accountable to all of it, you want to know all it says. If you want to know all it says, you'll find God's purpose and direction for your life. And if you follow God's purpose and direction for your life, you'll be fulfilled now and forever. You sense deep within you were meant for that. But it means stopping for a moment and just taking the thought to its logical end. We're inundated each day with opinions pressing us to quickly go with the flow. But don't let someone else's quick decision force yours. Ultimately, decisions become actions. And verses 7 and 8 remind us that our actions as followers of Christ are tried by fire. In heaven they emerge either as our rewards or ashes. Continuing our, our, uh, conditioning our minds to think of, uh, of biblically informed, God-honoring consequences is a step up another run and the ladder out and on spiritual maturity. But I can tell you, it really takes a lot of encouragement to take each step. And that's the reason the Father is so kind in the next section in verse, in chapter 6. He provides us with good examples that encourage us. In just a moment, we'll look at verses 9 through 12, but I remember... Henry Ford, the automobile baron, once said the following. He said, my best friend is the one who brings out the best in me. Do you understand by all that Christ has done, by what he has preserved in his word, and the way that his spirit speaks through his word to each of us, his aim is to bring out the best in each of us. But sometimes we also need other examples that have done the same. That Christ has influence them. So let's go to chapter 6 verses 9 through 12. Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for His name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. Now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope so that you won't become lazy but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Now it opens in verse 9 with a, with a very enduring term, dear friends. Uh, one writer, uh, I'm grateful to have read this, said that this word dear friends when it's translated elsewhere in the New Testament is always translated beloved. And when you hear beloved in the New Testament, it's always referring to the followers of Christ. Knowing that, let me just give you the picture of why and why this is so beautiful. Uh, you remember when Christ was baptized? 
came up out of the water, dove descended, the voice of God was heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Upon salvation, Paul talks about this in his letters, 85 times in his letters. He's enamored with the fact that we are in Christ. He is in Christ. The church is in Christ. We as followers are in Christ. That means Christ is our covering. So upon salvation, I am in Christ. And therefore, in my life as I sin, and I'm telling you I do this daily. It's not something I put on the list to do. It just happens. But as I sin, the beauty of it is I don't have to carry the shame because I know when the Lord looks at me, He still sees me as beloved because He sees me in Christ doesn't mean my heart's not sorrowful or broken and repentant. But at least I know I don't have to carry the, the shame because I'm in Christ. It's a powerful picture. We are dear friends. We are beloved. Then in verse 10, he, he tells them he has seen their hard work. This is a new compliment. He said, I've seen your work. I've seen your love. And the way they continue to serve each other. This word continue shows that they have not pulled away yet. And 1 John talks about how do we know that we are as followers by the way that we love one another. They have not pulled away yet, even though they're feeling the pressure to do so. It's a compliment. Encouraging to remain faithful to the end reminds them in verse 11 of others who have. Now, we're not going to get to Hebrews chapter 11, but at some point you've got to read Hebrews chapter 11 and slowly go through all those the Father has, has uh, marveled, no, been pleased with. It's impossible to please him. I love this without faith. And these are the faithful of the Old Testament. And they are there to encourage these Hebrews to stay faithful to the Father. And it uses the word to look at them and imitate them. And to do so, so it stirs up faith and perseverance. Imitate them. This word for imitate, a Greek orator in that time would have smiled. Because in order to become a gifted Greek orator, they had to do three things. They relied on the theory of oration, uh, the imitation of those who did it well, and just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. When I was a young pastor, that was in my mind. I was being taught how to preach. But then I was listening to those who, who were good, and I, I wanted to preach like them. At this stage in my life, um, this was Chuck Swindoll while I was in seminary. If you haven't heard Chuck Swindoll, he just has this wonderful melodic voice. Uh, you know, if I ever could record his voice reading stories for children to go to sleep, he'd be perfect. Um, so there was a Sunday morning, I was preaching at my part-time church. We had to drive from seminary uh, an hour and a half to get there. I thought, I'm going to preach like Chuck Swindoll today. And I got this nice rhythm, this ease of talking to everybody. And honestly, in the middle of my own sermon, I had to catch myself almost yawning. My own sermon was making me sleepy, so I knew I can't, I can't do Chuck Swindoll. Some years later, though, I was listening to another pastor. His name was Adrian Rogers. And if anybody's heard Adrian Rogers, who's now passed away, he had this deep voice. So I was using a diaphragm, and I was learning how to do this. And one of my sons had his friend at, uh, attend with us one Sunday, and when church was over with his friend, said, what's wrong with your dad? <laughs> You know, that's not the way he talks at home. And uh, I had I learned that wonderful moment. Uh, 
to trust the Father. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Communicate from the heart that He's given you and trust Him in that. You will have individuals in your life who will be wonderful to imitate as far as Chuck Swindoll and Adrian Rogers. I no longer imitate how they preach. I go back to what Hebrew says here. I'm trying to imitate their faith and perseverance. Adrian Rogers is now seeing the heaven he encouraged so many to enjoy. And I believe Chuck Swindoll is still preaching. So find those individuals. Be encouraged by those. So it encourages your faith and perseverance in maturing. Also, one of the beautiful things about it is um, it encourages us to hold on to God's promises in those difficult consequences that cause us to find individuals that encourage our determination to stay faithful. You'll find this in verse 12. You go back to verse 12. It not only charges us to imitate the faith and perseverance of others, it also provides an enticing incentive. It says it assures us to do so By doing so, we inherit the promises of God. And now he's about to step into the promises that God has made to Abraham. So when you get into verses 13 through 20, look what it says. For when when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently... Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by something greater than themselves. And for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. But God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. God guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We mentioned that last Sunday. Melchizedek in the Old Testament was both a priest and a king. And basically Christ, as we know forever, is our king and high priest. But from these verses, 13 through 20, there are several statements about God's promises. I think are worth holding on to, particularly in moments uh, when we need strength to continue maturing. So let me give them to you. Uh, Statement number one. God makes promises and keeps them. You'll find in verse 13, it simply says, God made a promise to Abraham. Uh, In 1956, Everett Storms used his 27th reading through the Bible just to start looking for, I want to identify all the promises that God makes. When he finished his reading, he identified 7,487 promises of God to us. When my boys were young, they would ask me, Dad, can we do this? Or, Dad, can I do this? Or, or Dad, are we going to do that, that or this? And I would say, well, we'll see. And in a parent's minds, in a child's mind, often we'll see is code for 
No. But I, I had to explain that to my boys. I, I literally said, guys, the, the, the reason I, I'm saying we'll see, I'm not saying no, but I am saying we'll see. I didn't want to give my word to them and then realize I can't keep it. So bless their heart, they grew up with a lot of we'll sees. But the beauty of our Father, there's not a single we'll see. Of these 7,487, the Father is completely confident He's going to keep His promise. I rest in that. Second statement from this is from verses 13 through 18. God keeps promises by His word and oath. Twice it refers to how God keeps His promises. One, uh, it does so by His word. If God says it, He'll do it. But on occasion in Abraham's life, God used an oath. An oath. You heard that in the text where it says he'll swear by uh, something greater than himself. But what the father swore by because there's nothing greater than him. No one greater than him. He swears by himself. I've given you my word. I've given you my oath because I'm swearing by myself. You'll find that in Genesis 24 verse 7. That's why in verse 18 that we've just read. It identifies the two things God can never change. He'll never change his word. Or his oath. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. Regretfully, we live in a day and time where our legal documents are getting longer and harder to read. The reason is we continue to break promises to each other. We keep making them longer to find some way to hold each other accountable to your promise. And what's sad since we break our promises to each other, sometimes we think God will break them with us. God is in this text saying, I cannot lie. I've given you my word and my oath on it. When I make a promise, I keep it. A third statement from this text is that God makes promises for today and tomorrow. Uh, when looking at the promise God made to Abraham... Some were fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. Others were fulfilled in the future. In Genesis chapter 12 verse 1, God promises Abraham to take him to a land he would show him. And in verses 6 and 7, God does that. So he promises it quickly and fulfills it quickly. In uh, Genesis 17, uh, 15 uh, through 16, God promises Abraham that Sarah would have a son. By chapter 21, Isaac is born. He's made it and he has kept it. But God not only made a and fulfilled promises to Abraham in Abraham's lifetime. He made promises to be fulfilled beyond Abraham's lifetime. When God promised to take Abraham to a land he would show him, God also promised in Genesis 2.12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. He never saw that in his lifetime. The only person in his nation was Isaac. It didn't happen for 600 years. But God made it and he kept it. Even though Abraham didn't see the fullness of its fulfillment. Some of the 7,487 7, promises God makes in scripture will be fulfilled in our lifetime. I want to encourage you with these. A little snippet. God promises to give you wisdom in James 1 5. He's doing that. Trust him in it. 
promises to be our refuge and strength when in trouble in Psalm 46 verse 1. To answer us when we pray in Jeremiah 33, 3, Matthew 7, 7 through 8. We will see these fulfilled several times over, but his promises of eternal life, to be united with him, with others who surrender to him, and of experiencing no crying, mourning, or pain as he has promised in his word will happen either when he returns or we will experience it after our lifetime on earth. But we can be assured he keeps it. And to be candid with you, those promises carry us when illness comes, when a loved one dies, when the governments uh, uphold ungodly values and laws. Holding to God's promises for today and tomorrow secures us when all around would make us feel insecure. Number four, God's promises affect future generations. You find this in verse 17. Look what it says. God wanted to show Abraham his unsearchable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise. He wanted to show that to the Hebrews. Abraham would not be the sole beneficiary of God's promise. Generations after him would inherit the blessing of the promise of God that he made to Abraham. We keep thinking it's going to be just to me. Don't underestimate that the promise the Father's made may be effective in your children, your grandchildren, other generations. You find this in the heartwarming story to me of uh, Mrs. Chambers. Everybody knows Oswald, but don't know her. Oswald Chambers died at age 43. He had pastored. He was a preacher. He had written one book. But after his passing, his wife took all those sermons that he preached, other writings that nobody ever published, and began to edit them. And most of us hold the book, My Utmost for His Highest, which is still in the top ten of the most widely read bestsellers in, in Christian literature, with millions of copies in print, and he never saw it. He was faithful in his lifetime, and the Father did things beyond his lifetime. We just have to trust the Father. And be obedient today. One last statement from that passage. God promises to address tangible and intangible needs. Uh, often we only recognize the tangible promises fulfilled. We'll put them in our journals. Hey, I prayed this day for wisdom. Hey, I had a great sense of understanding today because of... And we, we, we celebrate the tangible. And overlook the preciousness of the intangible such as when you're in the midst of something confusing, overwhelming, and you cry out to him holding to his promises, and though none have been fulfilled yet, knowing that he has promised, you breathe. The promises of God have some intangible beauty and strength when you just read them and breathe, though you haven't seen them fulfilled yet. Hmm. Uh... Yeah, I'll tell you the story. I read this, and I thought it was heartwarming. Uh, a woman was in a place where you and I have been there. Life collides from multiple directions and was needing encouragement from the Father and His promises. So she would open Scripture during the day, read, and when she found a promise, she would write it on a small piece of paper and even write how the Father applied that to her life. Roll it up and put a little ribbon around it and just put it to the side. After a while, she's done this for so long, she had to get a shoebox out, and she was putting them into her shoebox. And then, as you and I would do, after the 
collision of things have subsided, life is good. You know, the reading of scripture for promises, the doing all of this, she wasn't doing it anymore. And then the collisions came back. And she was looking for a shoebox. And she found it at the top of the closet, brought it out, was taking it to the table, and tripped. And it spilled out all over the floor. That's where she just stopped and smiled and simply said, God forgive me. I had forgotten all the promises you had made and how many times they were fulfilled. I'll be fine. Like this floor, I'm covered by all your promises. Great word. So you've been patient, you've been wonderful, but let me just take the last five minutes and finish with what I call some insights uh, from chapter 6. Just dealing with spiritual maturity. Uh, three gems. They're priceless insights. At least I thought they were. Gem number one. Spiritual maturity stinks. When I started seminary, my dad said, find T.B. Maston. Dr. Maston taught my dad when he was in seminary. He was retired. He basically was in a janitor's closet that turned into an office. He was still writing books at 85 on a legal pad and somebody else would have to type them up. But one of our conversations, he was just moaning over the physical aches and pains of being 85 years old. And he looks at me in this loving, caring, but firm voice and said, Maturity stinks. I want you to hear me. Spiritual maturity, the process of it stinks. It is painful, like physical maturing. There are challenges. There are aches. And honestly, the Father purposes it. Just as no one matures physically without growing pains, no one matures spiritually without learning from some painful moments. Gym number two. Spiritual maturity requires relearning. Uh, we learned at the outset that spiritual maturity should come natural. Now I talked about stepping on that first run of the ladder to step out. In my beautiful linear mind, I want everything sequential. Step one, step two, step three. But as you look at all that we've seen in Hebrews chapter 6, what you're going to find is it's actually, actually cyclical and causes us to have to relearn some things. My dad used to tell me, son, patience is always a lesson relearned. And there's some things in spiritual maturing, some lessons that we go through, that we still have to go through some of the same process. With each act, we have to consider the consequences. Follow godly examples. Hold to God's promises. I wish spiritual maturity was linear, like moving from grade to grade or run to run the ladder. However, it's more cyclical, forcing us to relearn, reapply our lessons of spiritual maturity. Being cyclical is not all bad, as long as the cycle keeps us moving forward in spiritual maturity. Last gem from Isaiah 6. Spiritual maturity needs mentors. The writer pointed to godly examples to encourage these struggling Hebrews. We not only need such examples today, we need to become them. Each of us influences others, whether it be your family, neighborhood, school, or work. Someone is constantly influenced by your actions or reactions in life. 
Strive to influence others towards spiritual maturity. Take the seldom traveled high and hard road with God. Inspire others to do the same. For we all need encouragement to work towards spiritual maturity. And the highest example, the greatest mentor we have will always be Christ. His example at persisting on a collision of circumstances not of his own making led him to a cross to uphold the holiness of God satisfy the wrath of God pay the debt for our sins and extend grace to us that we might know him intimately he endured not being known as he was known in heaven not being respected not being understood and yet he persevered honoring the father with faithfulness he is our example because actually he's the one we're being conformed to in this life with the things the father purposes he is so loving with his process of maturing us so we look to Christ which is what we're about to do right now as we observe the Lord's Supper but before we do let me pray Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you for your perseverance and your patience and your faithfulness with me. I know, Father, there are, there are days and I'm still the spiritual infant wanting milk or the kindergarten are wanting to be held back one more year. Because Father, the, the prospect of what is involved in spiritual maturity is frightening. And yet Father, once you have walked us through what you have purposed that we might know you more and, and, and know who we are and all we have in you, it, it leads to such beautiful worship. So I, I just pray that you help each of us, Lord, not put our hand up against those moments when you're maturing us. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you'd help us remember you well now. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your consummate example of perseverance and faithfulness. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. You've been listening to a message by Mark Becton, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.